We'll eventually get to uh, Numbers chapter 6. That's uh, page 98 in the Bibles that are there for you. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Uh, But I want to spend time on uh, two things. Uh, First of all, uh, Burkina Faso. So uh, many of you know that three of our members were in Burkina Faso last week uh, on a vision trip to help to define what, how our church would engage there, how all the members of our church might be part of that. Um, and while I have barely spoken with the returnees, um, I just wanted them to be with their family this weekend, uh, I, the vibe I hear is it was a very, very good trip. What, uh, what many of you may or may not know is that on the day that they departed from Burkina Faso, um, an Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorist group uh, attacked a, a hotel in Ouagadougou. That's the town in which they were staying. Um, took, it was a hotel frequented by Westerners. Took many of them hostages. It's, it came, the siege ended this, our morning today here. They also attacked a cafe right across the street and killed several people. And uh, our team has eaten there. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, I, have, I don't have anything really intelligent to say to you. I don't. You know, I want to explain to you my spirit. My spirit is there's frustration before the Lord. Like, man, Lord... Uh, I mean, this is really selfish on behalf of the church, but we've done good work to get to here. I mean, how I'm saying it to you, and I'm not even proud of it, that the Lord will allow this to get in the way, right? Because it's his will we're doing. How can he get in the way of his will? This has never happened. Um, You know, and I deal with uh, the confusion of what is wisdom and what is fear, I no longer know the difference between those two things. Obviously, the premium of fear has gone up in our fellowship. And I don't know how to point at that and say that's wise and that is of the flesh. Is this a moment where God is saying this is the measure of your faith or is this a moment where he's closing a door? I don't know that. It is not understandable by the intellect that this is an issue of prayer. It's entirely an issue of discerning the will of God. There's no way that we can evaluate this and get to the answer. So, uh, you know, there's times I said, well, you know, God protected all of our, our team. You know, no missionaries were, were harmed. That is not true, actually. A missionary, actually a close friend of Barbie Coleman, was killed in this attack at that cafe, uh, meeting a pastor. So... We need to pray. Not for this. It exposes in my heart the great constant need for prayer in our fellowship that we have done a faithful job of kind of inviting you into. Um, but I don't know if we've done, if I have done a faithful job of yearning for on behalf of us. So we give you, there's a space each week to come pray. Uh, I. Man, Lord, forgive me if I've been checking a box. 
We need to be a people of prayer. How else do we know his will? So I put that in front of you. Uh, I'm not frustrated at God. I'm frustrated in the midst of God. And uh, here's another area of prayer. Next week, it wasn't intentionally supposed to be next week. It was supposed to be February. Um, You have a very feeble pastorate. So now it's next week. But there is going to be a sermon series we begin in this church. Uh, We're entitling it Sex Drift. It's on broadband sexuality with attention towards same-sex attraction, homosexuality. What is happening and what is our role in that? Who is God in it? How do we speak? How do we display righteous love that does not forfeit truth? That is the next four weeks. Uh, If... The material, uh, you should assume on any given Sunday, the material is going to be mature. So in the 930 service where we have kids' church, there will also be a venue for fifth and sixth graders to attend. We will be speaking of things that I have not spoken to my fifth and sixth graders about. So if that helps you gauge, you're certainly welcome to hold them here. But uh, we will use terms that you use among your peers and only among your peers. The format, the Sunday mornings, will be um, our church pursuing humility in the spirit. So that's going to be the nature of the Sunday morning services. There will be, and Ryan, if you want to put it up here, there will be some other things I want to uh, put in front of you. Our normal 1030 deeper and wider class, which is right over there, and it takes place at 1030, Historically, it talks about the, the content of Sunday. On these specific dates, next Sunday being one of them, we've had some professionals in the field uh, that are in a part of our church preparing these courses or, or times together. So parents teaching sexuality to young kids, that's next week, and you can read the other titles. I'm saying that to you because uh, if you have young kids, you may be drawn to one versus you have no kids, you may not be drawn to any of these, though the deeper and wider that take place in between them or around them uh, will be basically on the content of the message. But, and you'll have a piece of paper next week, but since it starts next week, I wanted you to know about it. Sunday evenings, the following Sunday evenings will be uh, seminars devoted to more to the specific issue of homosexuality and what the Bible says, what the world says, how do we reconcile God in it. So I am not arming you to win an argument. That is not what these seminars are about. I am equipping you to think well of God in the midst of his truth so that we stop apologizing in our hearts and stop wishing God were different, which is you know, to use kind of Charles's phrase, a milquetoast perspective of God on this situation. We cannot love well unless we know him well. So the, the evening seminars will be devoted to those subjects. Also to help you, uh, the, there was a sermon series several years back, actually it was a while back, 2009, called Blended Images. It was about sexuality, men and women, 
That's been put in the archives. If it, it's been brought up if you want to go listen to it. Sometimes people want me to talk about everything, and it's just not enough time to talk about everything. We need to pray about that. I have an overwhelming sense of the need for prayer because if you think that there's not someone in this room who struggles with these issues, you're blind. We should always assume now, in a room of 100 people, someone is wrestling very hard with the Lord and doesn't know if God loves them or how that love translates. So this entire month is not about scoring points for our fellowship. It's not about you getting bullet points. It's about us aching into something that we have in many ways forfeited the right to speak in the past on. So uh, we just, we need to pray there. And so there is a prayer service coming up. I mean, every Wednesday night we meet for prayer and you're always welcome to come, right? And you can put the next one up. This one's a little unique. We're putting more attention into this one. We have some worship coming and uh, uh, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are helping make this a little broader. It's, you see two hours, you can come and go during any period of this time. So this is Wednesday the 27th and we're gonna be uh, bringing stories from the mission field in and bringing those up to the Lord. We still have families and members in our church who are in on on mission, on the way to Haiti or Nicaragua or Nepal, that's still happening, and, and uh, we ought to hold them up in prayer. And then for things like, like this, this, uh, this should sit as a burden on the fellowship. So I'm not inviting you to pray. I'm in yearning that uh, you join the fellowship in prayer. That's what I'm doing. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll set about on... Uh, a brief look into a, a closing word from the Lord. To whom else do we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. I pray, Father, that our church would not shrink away from the realness of things. No matter how dark they are, Lord, your word says even darkness is as light to you. We know through your word that the expanse of the earth is your dominion and that you desire not only to rule there but that the full expanse of who you are, your love, your reasoning, your truth, Lord, you want that to spread across the earth, both in distant lands and among people close, uh, but are distant from you. Lord, I pray that naturally the church would be called to prayer. Pray would be your voice that would echo the call to prayer. I pray they would naturally be encouraged towards fasting or towards bowing to you, Lord. I pray it would not be the words of a man, but the words of God himself. And that would do this thing for us so that we could know you in your will, in your personhood. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.
Right, we're closing the series on prayer with a closing prayer that you've heard many times, I think. Uh, I think I say this almost every Sunday or something like it. It's called the benediction. Why do we do the benediction? That's what I want us to spend a little time on. This was put in front of me. I, I, didn't, I wasn't looking for this thought, but uh, someone said, hey, how about you, why do you do that? And I thought, this is a series on prayer. Maybe we should talk about uh, something that we often do. So um, I'm not going to teach about what I say. I'm going to teach about the idea and what, what shows up in the scriptures. It's here in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. And it's uh, five or six fairly short verses. Let me read them for us. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So what is that? We call it a benediction. That's a good word. If you went to the Latin, bene is good, like benefit, right? Diction is word, dictionary. That's what this is. Something like this, many, many a, a priest or a pastor says at the end of a service. So what is it? Well, I suppose we could think of it in, like take two extremes that you know, we can almost immediately assume are false extremes, but just think of, think of the extremes and walk in. One extreme might be to say that this is simply, simply a liturgy. It's simply words. I use the word liturgy because many people here have, I have come from a more liturgical tradition to the, this, which is fairly non-liturgical worship meaning we don't have rote things to say, you're not opening a book, and there's no recitation of the worship. There's a general sense, right, in the rise of the, of the kind of authenticity, experiential language of the church. It kind of groans against liturgy. Maybe more than it ought to, but is this just liturgy? After all, the Lord does tell Moses to tell Aaron and his sons, you need to say these words at the end of worship. It certainly is at least liturgical. We, found, we find this, or versions of this, being expressed throughout Scripture, so we know that that's how they received it. We also have in excavations, archaeological excavations, found ancient uh, wristbands or, or funeral things with these words carved in them so that we know that this phrase, this benediction, this blessing did in fact sit in the place of liturgy among the Jews. But if it's just liturgy, that that's... Uh, well, that feels a little bit hollow, doesn't it? A little bit wooden. 
many of you who may have grown up in a highly liturgical fellowship, um, you might understand what I'm saying. You might understand more than what I'm saying, and I hope so, but understand when someone, whether it would be a child or somebody, a friend of yours says, I, I, I just don't feel any life in those words. We say them every Sunday. We just move through them. I have them memorized, and I say them without even thinking about them. Like that might be one extreme of looking at this. Is all this is is liturgy, that at the end of this service, when I say, may the Lord bless and keep you, may he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance to you and give you peace. If they were just words. That's the one extreme. The other extreme is to look at this phrase as an incantation, as a way of invoking the power of God, as a spell, okay, as magic. After all, the, notice verses 22 and 23 kind of lean towards the liturgy, say this all the time. Verse 27 leans towards <laughs> something's happening. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. There's an expectation of divine action here. Say to Moses, to say to the priests, to say to the people, these words, and when my name, and by the way, the word Lord there, that is the actual personal name of God, Yahweh. So it's unique from all the other gods. So he's saying in, in the service where my name presides over the people, my blessing is resident. That's essentially what he's saying. You know, the problem with, maybe with the extreme of saying this is an incantation is to place more stock in the words than maybe is right. right. God is not bottled up and conjured forth with words. God's not a slave to our words. We use words to define God, but we cannot use words to contain God. God's always bigger. We say this, a picture is worth a thousand words. That's our way of saying that thought or that idea can't even be expressed fully in words, uh, and to see it in another form gives so much more life to it. That's, that's the way the Lord is. The Lord's not trying to, to lead us towards thinking that he's containable or conjurable by words. Uh, I think that would be... I think that would be error. You know, this also, I want to be careful, this isn't necessarily the power of positive thinking going on. This isn't a Tony Robbins passage. Uh, you know, words do have power that way. The repetition of ideas have power. This is why you care about the lyrics that your kids listen to, because the repetition of words do have power. I am a big subscriber to the power of redemptive thinking, that the ideas of God ought to be in and around me all the time and that in hearing them, in being marinated in the truth of God, I rise up as a better person. I rise up as a new person, a new creation, redeemed. So there is power. Words convey meaning, and meaning has power. So certainly is liturgy, but it's not just liturgy. And it certainly has power, but it's not just an incantation. So what is it? Let's, let's look at it, how it's built for a second. 
it actually, and this is almost, it's very, very hard, not possible to see much of this in the English, but it is, for one, a, uh, well, this can be seen for sure, this first idea. It is a command to the priesthood delivered in the normal fashion that the law was given. And I just want us to see this. Do you see that the Lord spoke to Moses? Moses spoke to Aaron and the priests, and the priests were to speak to the people. You see that? That's classic. That's classic Old Testament. And uh, I want to point it out to you because uh, that chain of events, right? King God speaks to prophet Moses, who delivers the message to the mediators of the priesthood to get to the people. That's, that's how that happens. That's why when we, in Christ, notice he's king and prophet and priest, uh, he stands in the, God, uh, Jesus does all of this for us. It's worth noting, right? Here, the presence of the Lord descended into the tabernacle, met with Moses. Moses, through, with the authority of God, spoke to the priests, and the priests, with the right of mediation, mediated between God and the people. And Jesus does all of that for us. I want us to, I want to, I want to say that because, and this will matter all next month as we dip into the Old Testament on, on issues that people want to say are made obsolete because they are in the Old Testament. I want you to see that Jesus does not make it obsolete. Jesus perfects it. It's not as though God going to Moses, going to the priest, going to the people is has no meaning, it's that that meaning is understood in what Jesus Christ has done for us. God goes into the tent. Do you know in John 1 when it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling place among us? The phrase is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Our our bodies are described by Paul in the scriptures as tents. Jesus dwelled in a tent among men to deliver the prophetic word. He was very real, a prophet greater than Moses is what we were told to look for. He, the king, dwelled in the tent, expounded the power of words of the prophet, and mediated the, the, the great blessed sacrifice of the mediation. He's all of that. So we shouldn't look at this and go, well, this is something that the Levites were supposed to do to the people of Israel and, and that's long time, has no meaning now, we'd say no, no. In fact, Christ is the key to understand greater meaning for us. To me, a greater blessing can now be spoken over people. That we now know with greater clarity the kind of God that would want this to be said and why he would want it to have, be said over his people. We're his people. So that's the first thing that we're, worth noting is while this is kind of given in the Old Testament fashion, it is not old. It's, uh, it's relevant. Secondly, it's, it's quite beautifully arranged. It is very beautifully articulated. And these are the things you can't see, but if you know them, then I think you can appreciate the articulation a little better. The benediction happens in this fashion. The first line is three words. The second line is five words. The third line is seven words. So in the Hebrew, it's like a pyramid, okay? Which, if you look at the words, the words are an increasing repetition, a deeper repetition of the same idea. 
So the meaning of the words follow the structure of the words. In fact, the syllables, it goes from 12 syllables in the first line to 14 in the second line to 16 in the third line. And even verse 27 is 18 syllables. I mean, it's very beautiful in Hebrew. Just the, the kind of the motion towards meaning. And if, if we could see the structure, we might more quickly see kind of the emphasis gained through repetition that's happening in the, in, in the passage here. Notice, just if you look at the God's action on our behalf, so the first half of each phrase, the Lord bless you and keep you, or excuse me, the Lord bless you, which follow, in the next verse is the Lord make his face to shine upon you. In the next verse is the Lord lift his countenance upon you. That is, that's an embellishing of, the, of, of one idea. It's taking the idea, bless, and it's helping you understand bless by being in the light of the face of God, which is then embellished by the idea of the Lord turning his entire persona to you, his directing the attention of his grace to you. And you see it on the backside. May he keep us. May he be gracious to us. May he give us peace. That, that idea is a building idea. This, you know, the, I think of the number one way people go to God is, Lord, God, save me. You know, that keep equates to save, right? Just say gracious equates to, you know, gracious is gift-giving. Lord, provide, give, from, give to me, help, help me, right? Peace. It's not peace in the sense of uh, content. Uh, it's bigger than that. This is, in the Hebrew, is shalom, which means wholeness, completeness, fullness. So it's almost as though the repetition is, it's, it's evolving in the idea of saying, I, I, it's not simply the security of the Lord. Lord, keep me. It's not simply the provision of the Lord. It's, Lord, may God's countenance, entire disposition to me be such that I am entirely whole in him. It's God's desire that you would know that he wants to hold, save, and bring us to completion. It might sound this way in a song. Uh, He is a good father, and we are loved by him. One last idea, and I'll close. Uh, Number six. This is the very end of number six, which is interesting. If you just look at number seven, in this, we're not studying numbers. I don't expect you to kind of see this entirely. So just maybe take my word for it a little bit. But if you look at number seven, it says, on the day when Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, you see how it's history? It's history. It, number seven gets back into the story, okay? Number seven starts the, okay, they've been at the mountain for about a year. They've gotten all their... They've built the tabernacle. They've received the law. They've got all of this together. Now the story picks back up, and they leave the mountain, and they head over to the promised land, and they say, no, we're not going in. Okay, that, that's where number seven and on goes. In other words, number six, this blessing is at the very end of an epic section of Scripture that starts in Leviticus 1 of describing the ritual of God for people. 
the sacrifices, what kind of sacrifice, what's clean, what's not clean, how many clean, how do you wash a dish, all of these things. You know, what day of the month do I have to be where and, and what do I have to bring? What's a tithe look like? How does that measure up? What days do I have to rest? All of that, Leviticus 1, stretching all the way through to number 6, it's that. And at the very end, the very last thing the Lord says is, whenever you gather, whenever you gather in this way, <clears throat> the Lord loves you and he's on your side. And I think we should note that. I think we have all been uh, in, in the midst of a, a teaching or a service where, uh, you know, there's the Sundays where you're like, I don't get it. I don't know what this word has to do for me. And the person next to you is getting obliterated by the word of God. Taken down. Like there's a casualty of war because of the word of God. And you know what the Lord says? Do not end that way. That's what he says. You know, all of this sacrificial system, this exposing, I mean, if people were to live by the law of God, they would be more than any other people on the face of the earth aware of their sin. There's constant awareness of inadequacy, of limitation, of fallenness, of all of these things. All of that would be ever before, and the Lord says, don't end that way. That's not how you end a service with me. No matter, no matter how my word cuts, no matter how it wounds, you must end by saying, I'm on your side. My countenance is before you, and I bring you wholeness. That is what is in the amen of the Christian. And surely you will be with me all the days of my life. How often do we see this in God's word where we're convicted and then told we're loved? Uh, he is a good father and we are loved by him. Will you pray with me, Lord? We bring our frustrations to you and we thank you, Lord, that you are God that we can bring our sins to, we can bring our failures to, we can bring our pride to, we can bring the way we change our minds to you, Lord. We can bring our questions to you. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who does not shirk away from bringing to us conviction, exposing sin in us, Lord. Lord, we know you're not nervous about how we think of you. You're a good father who wants the best for us. Father, I pray that in the midst of uh, what this church is doing in mission, in the midst of how this church is raising families, Lord, we have, Father, we have 10 expectant mothers in this fellowship right now. Uh, in the way that, Lord, we speak of sexuality in such a saturated culture that has, Lord, almost forgotten the word entirely. We pray, Lord, we would not end in trouble, but be reminded that you are on our side and you desire to bless. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.